All right, the last few weeks, you know, this is week six now, we've been doing introduction. We did a four-week introduction into what prophecy is in general for you to have an understanding of prophecy. And then last week we did an introduction into the, the book of Daniel. So we're going to launch right into it today. We're going to launch right into it today and get right into lesson one of our, well, what's lesson six of our study of Daniel. We're going to get into chapter one. Now, let me just kind of help you to understand how the book is structured. Ancient Near Eastern writings were not necessarily, like when you and I write a book, you know, if you and I were to write a book, there, we have we, we think logically Western, you know what I'm saying, our Greek thinking, Roman thinking. And so, we, you know, we, we start from the beginning and good to the end. We don't chop things up. You know what I'm saying? You don't really find books like that. If you do, they're very rare. Ancient Near Eastern writing was a little bit different. And so they don't write things chronologically necessarily. Okay, because this is not a historical book. This book... Is a, is, a, is a combination of prophetic and historical, and so it's going to be chopped up somewhat, and that's what you're going to find here. And so a lot of times people will say, well, how do you read the book of Daniel? Because you start off here, you get, to, you get over here in this chapter to this Persian king, and then boom, it's back with the Babylonian king. How do you figure this out? Well, I'm just going to help you a little bit. What you're going to see is, is that primarily up to chapter 7, is going to be like a historical background to what's going on. From chapter 8 on is going to be the prophetic material. So chapters 1 through 7 kind of give the background for what's going to come so that you understand what's happening in Daniel's life and some of the significant events that are happening there. Okay, So I want you to understand it. And so specifically today, chapter 1, the purpose for chapter 1 is not to give you a good moral story about how you need to stand in the face of, of people trying to push you into, conform you into, you know, how to stand against peer pressure, okay, because that's how sometimes we use this story of Daniel and his friends not eating the meat but eating vegetables instead. It's not, it's not just a Sunday school story. There's, there's a purpose for it, and the purpose for it is, is to help you to understand how Daniel got where he is in Babylon, how he was elevated into a position of authority in Babylon. Did you understand what I'm saying? So it's going to give you some background material here that's going to kind of help you to understand the rest of the book. So that's what we're going to get into today. So, all right, let's get right into it. We're going to go through chapter 1 today. Let's look, first of all, at verses 1 through 7. His deportation, Daniel's deportation. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and of the nobles, young men, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, 
who had the ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. The king appointed to them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave the names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah he gave Shadrach. To Mishael he gave Meshach. And to Azariah he gave the name Abednego. Okay, so let's talk about this. First of all, the defeat of of Jerusalem, of Judea, of Judah. The events that we're looking at here took place in the third year of Jehoiakim's reign, which was 605 B.C. So what we're looking at here is the events that are taking place 605 years before Jesus. Okay? So these events took place in the third year of Jehoiakim's reign. Now what happened was is this. If you... The best way to understand is maybe to go to Second Kings and just kind of read there towards the end of Second Kings. It kind of tells you about King Josiah, who was a godly king. But here's the interesting thing. He had a God, was a godly king, but his sons were very ungodly, which is a good point for you to understand. Simply because your children may be raised in a godly home does not mean they're going to be godly children. Do you understand that? They're going to do what's right. Well... One of the kings, Jehoiakim, was the king of Judah at that time. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes and lays siege to the city and destroys it. Now, he laid siege to the city with his Babylonian armies. Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem with his Babylonian armies. Now, you have to understand, warfare was a little bit different back then than it is now. What they would do then is, is they would have a huge walled city, and the armies would come, and basically, it's, it's, a, it's a question of who can tough it out the longest. Can the folks inside the city tough it out longer than the army outside? And Because sometimes if it was a long siege, the army might give up and leave. But if it's a long siege and the army doesn't give up and leave, things like famine, pestilence, starvation happen on the inside of the city. In fact, it was very common that things like cannibalism would take place. And you'll read stories in the Old Testament about times when sieges took place, where cannibalism took place, where, where people would literally eat their own children to survive. Okay, that's how terrible it was. But here's what ends up happening. The writer records that God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to defeat Jehoiakim. So let me just stop for a moment. This is a point you're going to have to understand. From here on out, in the book of Daniel, one of the key themes, one of the key points that are going to be made over and over and over throughout this book is this, is that God is the one who is in control. God is the one who is in control. God is the one who allows nations to rise up, nations to fall. He allows victories for nations. He's the one who allows defeats. And when it comes to his children, Israel, God, the writer records that God is the one who allowed Nebuchadnezzar to defeat Israel. Do you understand? 
It wasn't because Nebuchadnezzar was a, a brainchild or he had a big army, and he did. But ultimately it's because God is the one who is sovereign who allowed it to happen. Now here's what happens then. With the defeat of Jerusalem, the temple is destroyed. The first temple, which is the Solomon Temple, is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. And the Babylonians took some of the temple treasures of the house to the house of his God. So the Babylonians took some of the temple treasures to the house of his God. Whose God? Nebuchadnezzar's God. And this was a common practice. What you would do is, is if you have to understand they were polytheistic, they believed in multi-gods, and what happened is the Babylonians would say, okay, well, your God obviously didn't defend you, your God didn't do anything for you, so when we wiped you out, we destroyed his temple, and we took his treasures to our God who was greater, who gave us the victory. Okay, so that's what they're doing here. Now, these vessels are going to be very important because they're going to show back up in chapter 5. When we get to chapter 5, you're going to see something about that. Let me just stop, give you an interesting point here. How many of you know that when Titus defeated Jerusalem and destroyed the second temple, the Herod's temple, okay, how many of you knew that that was on the exact day the exact day that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the first temple. How many of you knew that? Okay, I'm letting you know. Isn't that interesting? That's, that kind of communicates something about the sovereignty of God, isn't it? On the day, the exact day, several hundred years later, Titus, the Roman, when he destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed Herod's temple on the exact day, that the first temple was destroyed. That's amazing, isn't it? Okay, so we see it right here. Some of the temple treasures are taken into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar then, here's what he did. Now, this is what they would do back then. You know, right now when you defeat an enemy, the common plan today for the last hundred years is, is when you defeat an enemy, especially since World War II, is, is that you, you rebuild that nation. Isn't that what we do? You know, we had the Marshall Plan after World War II, and we rebuilt who? Germany and Japan, and they became super huge economic powerhouses. Isn't that what we're trying to do in Iraq? It's not working as well there, or even in Afghanistan. We're into nation building. That's not what they did in the ancient times. When they defeated you in the ancient times, they wanted to make sure you never raised up again. So here's what they would do. They would basically drain the country of all of its promising people and skilled people. So basically what he's doing here is he's, Nebuchadnezzar commanded young Jewish princes or young Jewish leaders to be taken to Babylon for service. Okay, so this is what they would do. In fact, what you're going to see is, if you read through Second Kings, you'll see that there are three different exiles. Nebuchadnezzar came and wiped out Jerusalem three different times. When he came, each time he would take a number of people with him. And he would end up taking, with the first group, he would take nobles, people who were intellectuals, he would take skilled laborers, and so forth, with him back to Babylon. And basically just leave poor people or other people behind. 
Why? Because they wanted to make sure that not, nobody could raise the city back up. They would be devoid of any kind of leadership and any kind of skills. That's their purpose in doing it. Now, let me show you on the map. You've got it right there. Here's Jerusalem. Here's Babylon. Now, it would look from the map that the most obvious route to go to is, is to just cross from here to here. That's not what they did. Okay? Because right here is a desert. Okay? You don't cross the desert in the ancient times. What they would do then is, what they would do is, and you think about this, they would make a trek all the way up to Haran and all the way down to Babylon. Why? They're following the Fertile Crescent. They're following the, 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 the areas along the river that would allow for life to be sustained. Because you just don't cross the desert... Maybe you could do it today in a mechanized vehicle, but you just don't cross the desert on foot because that's if you're being held captive, they would bring you on foot. The Assyrians were pretty brutal at this. The Assyrians were up around Damascus. When they took you into exile, they put a hook in your nose or in your lip and attached a rope to it and drug you that way. Okay, that's how brutal they were. So basically, what we're seeing here is, is that in fact, let's go back for a moment. Let's go back to Genesis. Remember Abraham? Abraham started out in a city called what? Ur. And when we know Abraham, what did they do? They followed the Euphrates River up to Haran, and then he went down into Palestine or Canaan. Okay? And again, it's all because of the Fertile Crescent, because you don't want to go here. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's the desert. You don't cross there. All right? So... That's what we're seeing there. So these young men, here's the, here's the criteria. Nebuchadnezzar sets a criterion for these young men. These young men must be good-looking and possess the ability to learn. So, I mean, he wants them to serve, so they've got to be sharp-looking. All right? So they've got to be good-looking young men, and they've got to possess the ability to learn. All right? So here's what they would do. They would study... The language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Now, let me just stop for a moment. Why would they study the Chaldean language? Why not the Babylonian language? Well, the Babylonians basically acquired the Chaldean Empire, which comes out of Ur. And basically because Ur, the Chaldeans were of a much higher level education-wise and intellectual-wise, they basically assumed that that would be the royal language and the language of learning, okay? So basically, anybody who's going to serve in the king's kingdom and serve the king is going to have to learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. That's what's going on here. Let me just see here. Where are we at next? Here's the king's provision. The king provided food and wine for his young men. So he wanted to make sure that they were fed well. So basically, whatever the king ate is what they ate. So if you had roast beef that week, roast beef was on the menu for those young men. Basically, he's making sure that they get provisions. So they would be provided with food from the king. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a bad deal. Well, if you're Jewish, it is. 
Because the problem is, is that you're talking about a Babylonian culture that is that is around polytheistic thinking. All of the meat and all of the wine would have been dedicated to who? Their God. Okay? Which would make it a very bad thing for a Jewish young man who is devout to adhere to. Now here's what they would do. After, they would enter into the king's service after three years of training. Now, here's a note. You can put this on the side. It is a common consensus among scholars that Daniel was a eunuch. Because he was put in the care of the eunuchs, and those who served in the king's court would, as servants, would be eunuchs. In fact, you never read anywhere, no even extra-biblical literature ever talks about Daniel having a wife or children. And it's because the common practice back then is if you entered into the king's service, you were made a eunuch. What does that mean? They were castrated. That's pretty rough for a young man. Because by the time they assumed that Daniel was about 16 when he was taken in to service to the king. Okay? Daniel was about 16. So let's talk about Daniel and his friends. Now you're going to see the text tells you two names. The text tells you in verse 6 their Hebrew names. And in verse 7 you're going to see their um, uh, Babylonian names. Now it's interesting because when we talk about them, we always refer to Daniel as who? By his Jewish name, Daniel. Okay? But when you and I talk about his friends, we always talk about his friends with their what? Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay? Those are his Babylonian names, but you're going to see the text is going to tell us two different things here. The writer provides the Jewish names for Daniel and his friends. That's the first thing we see in verse 6. He's providing the Jewish names. And then in verse 7, the writer provides the Babylonian names for Daniel and his friends. Okay, that brings us now to where we're going to talk about Daniel's devotion. Because he's in a situation now where he's going to be fed this stuff from the king's table. And what does he do? Now, and we all, if you've been in Sunday school, if you know the, you know this, the story, but we're going to look at it here for our purpose. Okay, let's look at verse 8 through 16. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give them, let, let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, the appearance of the younger men, 
who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the stewards took away the portion of the delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Okay, again, a familiar story, we know that. So let's look, look what's going on here. First of all, Daniel determined not to defile himself with Babylonian food. So let me just stop for a moment. It's not like he, just so you grasp what's going on here, it's not like he looked at the meal and said, oh, gross, this is terrible. I mean, it's, it's the king's food. It's really good food. It's just the problem is, is that it had been dedicated to who? To a false god. The other problem is, is that it would not be according to Jewish dietary laws from the Old Testament. Okay? So maybe they were serving rabbit that day. Hassenpfeffer. Okay? Maybe they were serving Hassenpfeffer. Now the problem is a Jew won't eat Hassenpfeffer because he's banned by the law from eating rabbit. Okay? You're saying they're missing out. Yeah, they're missing out. Okay? Maybe, maybe it's a pork loin done right. All right? The problem is, is they're not allowed to eat it. So he purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Now what does that mean? To make himself ceremonially unclean before God. It has to do with his acceptance before God. Okay? He made his request to the chief of the eunuchs. Now notice how he handled it. This is always a, a good good thing to notice here. He didn't have a pitch of fit. He didn't, you know, go on hunger strike. He didn't do any of that. You know, he didn't rebel against the system or whatever. He went and talked to the chief of the eunuchs and said, hey, can we work something out different than this? Okay? God moved. Now, notice something. Again, look at the sovereignty of God coming out of the text here. Look at the sovereignty of God. God moved the heart of the chief eunuch to show favor and goodwill to Daniel. Do you see that? So God is sovereign in what he's doing here. Now Daniel's the one who had to make the decision, I'm not going to defile myself before my God. And, and notice he didn't get rebellious and he didn't say, well, I don't like the way things are going, I'm going to protest. You know, he went and talked to the guy and notice what God did. God moved that guy's heart to show favor towards Daniel. And here's what, it, but here's the guy likes Daniel, he wants to help Daniel, but here's the problem. He was concerned that he would suffer if Daniel did not thrive physically. In fact, notice the word there, he feared his head. Anybody have any clue what that might mean? He is probably going to lose his head. Do you understand what I'm saying for not following out the king's orders? I mean, that's, I mean, that's, when's the last time you didn't do what the boss told you to do? Do you know what I'm saying? You kind of didn't listen to him. How many of you had the fear of your boss chopping your head off, literally? None of us, right? Okay. None of us. Now, you might be here in management and you're thinking, I wish I had that capability. But no, you don't, okay? You don't have that capability. All right. So, let's go on. That's not our culture. Daniel proposed a test. Now, here's what Daniel did. A lot of wisdom with Daniel. Daniel proposed a test P. 
period of 10 days with a certain diet to his, to his steward. He says, well, you know, hey, let's try this for 10 days. Okay? He must have been pretty sure of himself to propose that. Do you understand what I'm saying? He must have been pretty sure and confident that things were going to be okay for him to propose a 10-day test. Now, at the end of the test period, they should be compared with those who ate the king's food. So he's saying, okay, give us 10 days. Let us eat these vegetables. Let us just drink water. And at the end of the 10 days, at the end of the 10 days, you can check us out with everybody else. Now, the steward agreed and tested them for 10 days. So we see that. The, the uh, chief of the eunuchs agrees and tests them for 10 days. Now, at the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his friends fared better condition than the others. They fared better condition than the others. Here's what ends up happening. The steward replaced the king's diet with the Jewish diet. So with these three boys, with these four boys, he ends up replacing the king's diet with the Jewish diet. So then notice now we're going to look at verse 17 through 21. We're going to see Daniel's appointment. We're going to see how he's elevated. This is all background here. How he's elevated into the, king, the king's service. Now, let me just stop for a moment. I want to remind you. Let's remind ourselves a little bit about the languages in which Daniel was written. Chapter 1 was written in the Hebrew language. Chapters 2 through 7 are written in the Aramaic language, which would be the trade language among those Gentile nations. Chapters 8 through the end of Daniel are written again in Hebrew. So what's going on here? Remember I told you, chapter 1 really serves as an introduction to how we get to the, where the rest of the book is. Okay, so it's written in the Hebrew language, because a Hebrew would read this and understand completely. When we get into chapter 2 through 7, as we move on in our study, we're going to see that, it's, again, the focus now is on the Gentiles. Okay? So let's talk about Daniel's appointment. This was in the Hebrew language. Look with me at verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that, there should be, that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all of his reign. Wow. Let's look at here. First of all, their progress. God endowed Daniel and his friends with knowledge and wisdom. Okay, let's stop for a moment. Again, what's the first thing you see here? God's sovereignty. God is the one who's giving them the abilities. You understand? God is the one who's giving them. He endowed Daniel and his friends with knowledge and wisdom. Next thing. Now, specifically with Daniel, here's the interesting thing that he did with Daniel. God gave Daniel an understanding concerning all visions and dreams. 
So you've got these five young men. They're all endowed by God with wisdom and understanding. But one specific young man, Daniel, who's been given the ability to understand vision and dreams from God. So he's a pretty sharp guy. So then here's what they do. At the end of their training, they appeared before the king. So it's exam time. It's, it's, it's time for them to be examined by the king to see how they're doing. All right? Now, the king interviewed them and found them superior to the others. So he interviews them and he finds that these five young Jewish boys are by far superior than other, any of the other boys who were brought there. And here's what you're going to see now. The text that Daniel served basically until the fifth year of Cyrus, which was 539 B.C. Wow. So let's stop for a moment. What are we talking about here? Daniel enters into the king's service, and he basically stays in that service from Nebuchadnezzar to Nebuchadnezzar's son, grandson, all the way into the reign of the first Persian king, Cyrus. So this is how significant Daniel is. In fact, what we're going to see is, if there are points in the text, as we get along in the text, where Daniel is elevated so high, he's like the number, number two dude, number one dude. He's like really high up there as far as his position in the kingdom. This is how significant he is. Okay? Okay? Go grab your coffee. 